0: This is the Howell Creek Radio Address for Saturday, June 23, 2012. I'm Joel Duick. As I told you we would be doing, Trixie and I drove back to Niagara Falls last week for our first visit since being married a year ago. We drug ourselves out of bed and hit the road at 5.30 in the morning, Central Time, and pulled into a stop at Niagara at 2.30 in the morning, Eastern Time. During the 20 hours of driving in between, we listened mostly to audiobooks. Whenever Trixie was sleeping, I listened to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And when she was awake, we listened to John Le Carre's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Both of these books are very long and very British. And 20 hours of listening to British accents will have you emerging from the car with a game of -of tug-of-war going on between the speech centers in your brain and the muscle memory in your tongue about how exactly to say things. Fortunately, I found that the problem could be ameliorated somewhat by stretching out in a horizontal position for seven hours. A few months ago I was introduced to the idea of distributism, which purports to be an economic third way in opposition to both capitalism and socialism. As a disaffected capitalist I've been searching for just such a third way for some time now. Take some time to boil it down and the basic goal of distributism is simple. Everyone should own their own small business or own a piece of the business where they work. Rather than being content to improve someone else's business in exchange for nothing more than a wage. The name distributism tends to suggest forcible redistribution of property by the government, say, but I learned that this is not what they propose. Under a distributist system, there would be a strong incentive for companies to operate as worker owned co ops or family owned businesses, and strong disincentives against any other type of setup. You would graduate school looking to set yourself up and practice in some way, perhaps as a craftsman or an artist, and to qualify to join a guild of others in your trade. The guild, with the oversight of the local government, i.e. your neighbors, would hold you and everyone else in the guild to certain standards of quality and fair practice, allowing you to focus on improving your trade without worrying about being caught up in a runaway price war. Richard Aylman writes, Distributism eliminates the friction between capitalist and labourer by making them one and the same person. I haven't met a capitalist or a Socialist who can find anything wrong with that, and most of the people I interviewed praised a society of micro property. I don't know what it is about Niagara Falls, Canada, but when I'm out there, a world of small enterprise and ownership seems just so much more possible somehow. Trixie's mother has built up a little business making and selling jewelry at local markets, so perhaps being around her and the coterie of small farmers and foodists at the markets has something to do with it. But it's not just being around entrepreneurs. It's understanding the environment that allows them to thrive. Niagara Falls is one of those comparatively rare places that has a year-round flow of travelers, with time to shop and money to spend. The town has had its share of big corporations move in over the years, but because of all those tourists, opportunities abound for the small business as well. Where it gets really interesting, is that the flow of people that creates such a rich purchase point, for the entrepreneur, is itself caused by nothing more than a simple fixture of the landscape. A huge curtain of water flowing over a great crescent-shaped precipice. As it happened, we were in town for the perfect example of this effect, when Nick Wallenda became the first person ever to cross a tightrope directly over the falls. Where the largest crowds usually flood the town with about 30,000 people on New Year's Eve, this event pulled in about 120,000. I have an idea that natural wonders are the most potent attractors of people, and therefore of wealth. I had spoken of this once with Otto Redjacket, whom you might almost describe as a North American Merlin, one day in the Niagara Gorge, and he agreed, but he also went one further when he explained that this was in fact an ancient principle, one that factored heavily in the construction of the oldest man-made monuments and wonders of the world. The great monument, he said, is essentially a man-made natural wonder. The idea is to create something as singular, and most importantly, very nearly as natural and as permanent as a feature of the landscape. The practical beauty of a really great monument is that, properly constructed, it creates a constant influx of people, while requiring almost no maintenance. The effect on the locals is of inestimable importance as well on the whole a people who live near a great monument have more pride and are thus more likely to have the confidence necessary to attempt and succeed in ventures and to invest themselves in keeping their buildings and public spaces looking beautiful this in turn makes the place more attractive to visitors and further increases both trade and local pride the interplays between travel business opportunity and aesthetics feed off each other in a veritable nest of virtuous cycles. What about the pyramids, I asked Otto? What good had the pyramids done the ancient Egyptians? Or the Machu Picchu of the Mayans? Plenty, he said. These nations fed off the strength of their monuments for thousands of years. But both moral and military neglect can bring down any nation and no monument can serve as a proof against rebellion from within or invasion from without. I asked Red Jacket why his own people, the Seneca, or the other neighboring nations had not indulged in making for themselves wonders of this kind. It was not our way, he said. The nations of South America built them, as you know, but we expressly separated ourselves from that kind of practice. For what reasons? I asked. We did not repeat the reasons to our children, he said. Twenty generations ago, you could not have found someone who could recite them. But why did you not preserve your reasons, I pestered him. To break with a civilization is a decision of immense importance. But he only returned to his theme like water settling in a bowl. Again, that was not our way at the time. To reason always against something is to make it the center of your world. The End Thanks for listening to this episode of Howell Creek Radio. I'm Joel Duick. If you like this piece, you can hear another one about Niagara Falls by going to jduick.net and listening to the episode for February 21, 2011, titled The King and the Jester. Also, in case you're interested in learning about and discussing distributism, I've started a subreddit for the topic. You can find it at reddit.com slash r slash distributism. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Howell Creek or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Howell Creek. In fact, this week happens to be the week of Trixie's birthday. She'd love it if you gave it her a shout out on Facebook or on Twitter. The text of this podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license.